Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday. Hope you had a good weekend. If you had some time off on the weekend, beautiful day in Metro Vancouver today. And we have a lot to get to. Starting off the show, taking a look at what's happening when it comes to tenting and allowing homeless people to camp in different parts of Vancouver. As you know, a special meeting of the Park Board is happening this evening. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're also expecting to hear from some of the campers in Strathcona. Park. They're holding a news conference today around one o'clock. So we'll have some more details on that as well. Also going to talk about the ongoing controversy about the We Charity Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier today coming out saying he is sincerely sorry for not recusing himself from the vote. So we're going to talk about that and open up the phone lines. And a bit later on in the program, as I was mentioning before, Quite the tale of what one man did, a BC man, what he did to get to Point Roberts to get and check on his boat. And there's a whole lot more to that story that we will get to a bit later on in the program. But first, as you know, there is an ongoing problem with homeless camps in Vancouver. Oppenheimer Park was a huge camp for years. After it was cleared out, though, and people were offered housing, as expected, other tent cities popped up in other areas, Crab Park and now Strathcona Park. So what is the next step? What would we like to see happen when it comes to people pitching tents and camping in parks and near businesses? It's not just in parks. Let's bring in Theodora Lamb, Executive Director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association. Theodora, thanks for being back on the show again t- today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts first? I know we're going to hear more from some of the people living currently in Strathcona Park. What has been your experience with this camp that's been set up there? Oh, it's complex right now, right? So the businesses who operate in Strathcona, we've all been through Oppenheimer Park. We advocated quite strongly to have those folks housed and to have that park cleared. Now, we still don't have access to Oppenheimer Park, the businesses and residents in that part of the district. You know, fast forward, a lot of the folks um, who uh, weren't housed out of Oppenheimer, they moved to Crab Park and then onto Portland into a parking lot, and more folks joined. Um, the port sought the injunction, and then they moved again, and now they're back in the Strathcona district uh, in, in a much larger park than Oppenheimer, but still a public park. And then tonight... The Parks Board is going to hear from residents, organizers, businesses alike on what should happen next uh, and and, and to uh, make changes to a bylaw that would give them a lot more power to clear an encampment if they need to. Now, I know the changes apply to, you know, the 230-plus parks across the city, but I think Strathcona is really unique because we right now have this large homeless camp, which has grown and grown week by week. I think we're up to 250 tents in there right now. Uh, Do you think, though, even if the Park Board went ahead and approved this motion that from dusk until dawn, people can uh, people would be allowed to camp in parks? Do do you think there's there's any way? I mean, it seems ludicrous to think that at 8 a.m. every morning, if people are camping in Strathcona Park, and like you said, there are 250 plus tents there right now, they're all going to get up and magically move and go somewhere else at eight o'clock in the morning. I I agree with you. I don't I don't think that's likely at all. And I, I think what's 
frustrating. Um, and also a window of opportunity for everyone involved is to actually come together and talk about, well, what can we really do here? Because enough housing is not going to pop up overnight. There's this interim solution that is needed. And, you know, the Strathcona Residents Association, uh, Produce Row, the businesses along there, the Strathcona businesses, we've, we've come together to talk about what that could be. But we really need our municipal and provincial leadership to come to the table and engage on that conversation. So the fact that Parks Board is, you know, meeting with the public, they're going to be making decisions around this, this is a very minor step in a much larger issue because even if Parks Board can clear that park, where will everyone go? People are not going to leave Strathcona or the, the east side of Vancouver. So I, I think this is a problem that uh, is waiting bigger solutions in the long run. Uh, do you have any concerns that if it was approved as well, uh, A, you're right, no, it's not as though it's going to lead to Strathcona Park being cleared, but does it op- open it up then that, that to we're going to see camps spring up in every park, in every green space in the area? I don't know about that. We haven't seen that up to date. I mean, there are reasons the homeless camp is uh, where it is, the proximity to the downtown east side, to services uh, made available. Um, This is, you know, the businesses and the residents who operate and live here in this community are are not new to some of these issues. So I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say if that would pop up in the west side of Vancouver. I think what's happening right now is that Strathcona still has one park you know, out of commission, that's Oppenheimer. And um, Strathcona right now, the Strathcona Park is uh, largely occupied by this camp. It's not that you can't use it, but it really changes things and it makes things more difficult for a lot of folks. Uh, Have things gotten better or worse since Oppenheimer was cleared? So if you walk around Oppenheimer, it's a lot more quiet. It's completely fenced off. You can't use the park right now. Um, what we saw at the BIA is once it was clear, those folks who didn't want to leave the park or go into housing or folks who were coming outside to uh, begin camping, we saw those um, encampments pop up in front of businesses. And that's a whole other issue that makes things very difficult if people are camping in the doorways of a business that needs to open its doors every day where employees come in and out. And so what's happened is we've seen a lot of people move towards Strathcona Park and centralize there. Fewer encampments in front of the businesses, but that's not to say they're not there. Um, And just a lot more activity in one central place. And you touched on this as well, the idea of housing. It's not going to happen overnight to, to help people to find permanent housing. Do you have any suggestions or if you were speaking to the park board, what would you say? Well, we wrote a letter, the Strathcona BIA, to Parks Board and to our uh, municipal and provincial leaders. We did this in partnership with the Residents Association, with the Safety Association of Strathcona, and with Produce Road. Those are the businesses that line Strathcona Park, and it's our food distribution hub in the city. Um, we, we suggested that we would be willing to support a more permanent site for a homeless encampment that was monitored and supported, uh, but that was not in a public green space. Part of that is because Strathcona in East Vancouver already has such little park space to work with compared to other parts of the city. And so we were willing to get behind coming to the table to look for a more permanent solution that wasn't necessarily outside of the district. It's not like you know, people are just going to leave Strathcona in East Vancouver and not come back. This, these issues remain our issues, but we're willing to talk about it and think about a more longer-term solution. But we have yet to hear from our provincial leaders on that. Is there a specific space that you think might work? 
I think it's going to take conversations with the province and the federal government. I think there's probably some solutions and sites that would require conversations, but that would fall back uh, possibly uh, on, you know, different jurisdictions. I think the space that was next to Crab Park, the parking lot that was on port federal land, uh, I know that the organizers of the park would like to see the encampment go back there. It would be interested to he- interesting to hear what others think about that as an opportunity. But I, I don't think homelessness is just going to go away if a park is cleared. I mean, I think that's the piece that's the, uh, the most difficult. And what makes this so complex is... as you know, on one hand, you have residents and businesses who are trying to live and operate and use their green space. And then on the other, you have this community of vulnerable people who have nowhere else to go right now. So so how do we make this work? Well, as you've been hearing in the news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau admitted earlier today that he made a mistake when he did not recuse himself from discussions about whether We Charity should administer a federal student volunteer grant program worth almost a billion dollars. During a news conference, he said he should have done so given his family's relationship and financial ties to the We organization. I have known, uh, obviously, for many years that my mom has been an extraordinary advocate for mental health issues, a professional public speaker who works with a range of different organizations. Obviously, I knew uh, she worked with WE. Uh, I didn't know uh, the details of how much she was getting paid by various organizations, but uh, I should have, and I deeply regret that. He went on to say he is sincerely sorry. Let's bring in Michael Cooper, MP representing St. Albert Edmonton, also the deputy conservative finance critic. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. What's your response to hearing the Prime Minister's apology today? Well, it's uh, it's a little rich for the Prime Minister to now uh, profess to be sorry uh, over a matter that uh, he clearly is blameworthy uh, in terms of uh, awarding uh, a sole source contract to an organization that had enriched uh, his family to the tune of $300,000. Uh, the Prime Minister has not been forthcoming with Canadians. This is a prime minister when uh, questions first arose about the sole source contract, tried to pass the blame onto the civil service when, in fact, it was he and his cabinet that made the decision. Uh, The prime minister wasn't forthcoming about the fact that his family had benefited financially. In fact, we had expressly denied that any member of the Trudeau family had received fees or an honorarium. Uh, We know that is false. Uh, So throughout, the Prime Minister has not come clean. He has, uh, in fact, lied repeatedly, and now he is sorry because he got caught. What do you take to is it that he's apologizing for this? He's saying he didn't know how much his mother had made. He regrets bringing his mother into this. But if you look at the timeline of Justin Trudeau's association with we, with the Kielbergers, it goes back to, I think, 2007. He himself has been a huge proponent. He's been a, a benefactor of donations, campaign donations. He's been a speaker. I mean, he's been entrenched in this organization. Doesn't that in itself, even if you take out the family connection and the fact that his family has made money, doesn't that also suggest a conflict? Uh, absolutely it does. And of course, he knew that his wife uh, is an ambassador and she has a podcast and that they have benefited politically and socially, and we now know uh, financially. And uh, so uh, there are multiple sections of the Conflict of Interest Act that were likely violated, which is why the Ethics Commissioner is rightfully 
opened an investigation, by the way, the third ethics investigation into this prime minister in three years. And I would argue that uh, what's more is that there are questions about whether or not the prime minister, in fact, broke the law, which is why we've also called upon the RCMP to open up an investigation. And which law specifically are you suggesting the prime minister has broken? Uh, uh, Arguably, Section 121 of the Criminal Code, which prohibits an elected official or employee of the government from uh, accepting uh, an advantage or benefit in relation to uh, a transaction or business of the government. Uh, there is also the potential that uh, the Prime Minister contravenes Section 122, uh, which relates to breach of trust. Uh, so uh, there are questions in that regard. When we look at this as well, like you said, this is the third time that he has been investigated by the ethics commissioner. It doesn't look great. He clearly didn't learn from the first two times that he was investigated. What about the people around him, though? Because he's not making decisions all on his own. He has advisors. He listens to his advisors. We know very closely. What does this say about the people around him? Well, we need uh, we need answers. But I, I think it starts actually with the prime minister. Um, he's the one who has benefited uh, financially and his family financially uh, from the WE organization. Uh, so he needs to come clean and answer questions, which is why we are calling on the Prime Minister to appear before the Finance Committee, which is undertaking hearings on how this contract was sole sourced to WE. And, I know we're... And, and I've got to tell you, you know, I mean, just going on in terms of how the Prime Minister has been less than forthcoming. I mean, I find it just incredible that he has uh, had the audacity to claim that uh, the WE organization was the only organization uh, that could have uh, provided uh, this particular uh, program. Um, It's incredible in light of the fact that he has refused to answer, or anyone in his office has refused to answer, what other organizations were considered. And in addition to that, uh, there already is a program Uh, that exists that uh, connects young Canadians with uh, charities and the not-for-profit sector, and it's called the Canada Summer Jobs Program. So uh, the Prime Minister there again has has not been uh, straightforward with Canadians. Well, and isn't that one of the questions as well? Like you said, there's now a question, did this, A, it was a sole source contract, maybe we should be doing away with those altogether. And also, why did you even need a third party to do this when there is, like you say, this program that already exists in in government, it's already been ramped up because of COVID-19. Why couldn't you just administer this taxpayer fund yourself? Exactly. And the, you know, the Canada Summer Jobs Program, which has been in place for almost two decades. Uh, All it would have taken is to provide additional resources to that program if the Prime Minister wished to expand it. So uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Everything that the Prime Minister has said just hasn't added up. It's led to more and more questions. And finally, I guess today the Prime Minister broke in saying that uh, he's sorry. But again, I mean, you don't just get to award a $1 billion contract to your friends to break the Conflict of Interest Act in all likelihood and potentially violate the criminal code and say, gee, I'm sorry, and walk away. Uh, We need answers, and uh, as a starting point, the Prime Minister should appear before uh, the Finance Committee. And he can do so voluntarily, uh, which I hope he will do. And if he has, in fact, nothing to hide, I believe that's what he will do so or should do so. 
And uh, if he refuses to do so, we will proceed to compel him to appear. Uh, and just before I let you go, what about Bill Morneau? He has certainly shown that he has ties uh, with his family members employed uh, by we. He also did not recuse himself from that vote. Uh, what about uh, Bill Morneau's role in this? He, he should have recused himself, given the fact that he has two immediate family members who are connected to we, including one uh, who is on the payroll as a contractor. And it's why... Uh, Pierre Polyev and I on the weekend wrote to the ethics commissioner to also call upon him to uh, investigate Bill Morneau in light of his failure to recuse himself. All right. We will leave it there. Michael Cooper, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Jill. Well, you've probably heard this story in the news before. The unintended consequences of blocking, stomping the border between the United States and Canada. The tiny spit of Point Roberts, where usually there is a ton of movement over that border. Canadians, uh, Americans, a lot of Canadians get mail delivered to Point Roberts, might have a boat at the marina. So what are they to do during this pandemic? There has been an online petition urging the government to let B.C. residents with property there to briefly crossover. And Kevin McIntosh is the man behind that petition and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi there, Jill. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, So pretty fascinating, I think, uh, what you have done to get to Point Roberts. But we'll start with why is it important to you uh, to have this petition or to try and get government to see how important it is to, to let residents like yourself access Point Roberts? Okay, well, uh, right out of the gate, um, I'll tell you that I got no sympathy for people picking up mail and packages. Uh, That stuff can wait. It's not that important. Um, The aim of the petition was to address people like myself, people who have boats down in the Point Roberts Marina, and to probably a greater extent folks that have cabins or cottages, you know, some form of real estate. And there's also people who board horses, apparently, and... uh, All of these kind of folks are being prevented from accessing their property and providing care and maintenance functions or removal functions. In my case, I wanted my boat out of Point Roberts. It was long overdue for service. And um, I had the the raw water cooling system all apart, had the heat exchangers open to the engine room, uh, raw water pumps apart. And uh, it was just sitting at a precarious state of disassembly when I was prevented from returning to the boat in mid-March. So my act of uh, going to Seattle and uh, then Bellingham and then Point Roberts by air was an act of desperation, and I had to weigh the risks of, uh, you know, contracting COVID-19 by going in amongst folks in uh, Seattle, Bellingham, and Point Roberts, respectively. So how did you actually get to Point Roberts? So this is the funny thing. Like, my boat was in a moorage slip that is, like, literally eight blocks south of my house in Sawasan. Uh, and so that's a logical place to keep a boat. For me, it was anyways. And plus, they're competitively uh, priced in terms of their moorage and whatnot. So the land border folks, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection folks, they have a policy to follow. And no recreational uh, persons or, or you know, intent to, to, uh, to recreate down there. None of those folks were allowed, including anybody with a boat. And I specifically asked them if I could remove the boat. And I was told I was not allowed to enter. So uh, the people at uh, Vancouver International, there's U.S. Customs and Border Protection there that do the preclearance on the flights that are leaving Vancouver going into the U.S. 
I explained what I was doing, and they had absolutely no problem with it. They wished me well, wished me luck in my journey in my boat from Point Roberts, and away I went. So I flew to Seattle on uh, on Delta Airlines, uh, which uh, I used to work for them, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. And then I uh, rented a car and drove it up to Bellingham, and then I got on uh, San Juan Airlines, and I, I chartered a flight to uh, Point Roberts, got out of the airplane, walked in the pouring rain to the boat, put it together, got everything working, and departed on Wednesday the 8th, uh, arriving in Steveston to clear Canada Customs, which I did uh, about 5.30 in the afternoon. And did Customs ask you or have any questions as to how you got there and how you were arriving on this boat from the States? Oh, absolutely they did. Um, the, the procedure for arriving from uh, from the seaside, like the waterside, is to telephone them as soon as you enter Canadian waters, and they will, based on wherever it is your ultimate destination is, they will tell you where to go to be met by customs officers, and that's the very first people you have to talk to. So I phoned in uh, well ahead of time, uh, arranged for them to meet me in Steveston, which they did, and uh, those two officers showed up. Apparently, they're from the um, Canada uh, Canada Place uh, Customs Office, the Marine Office. Uh, they were already in Steveston, so it worked out good for them. Um, they came and interviewed me. One of them stood on the float with me, interviewed me for about an hour while the other officer went through everything in my boat from, from head to tail. And uh, when they were satisfied, they issued me a clearance number. Um, they were satisfied with my quarantine plan, which I laid out for them in detail. And uh, they released me to my own recognizance to take the boat further up the river. Uh, this is the south arm of the Fraser River, further up the river to a, uh, a spot where it could be lifted out of the water and put on the ground, what, what we refer to as on hard. So it's safe and sound sitting on the hard. But what an ordeal to go through to, like you said, get your boat, which was eight blocks from your house. And you also mentioned here you are putting yourself on a flight into the States. You're going into a state that has way more cases of COVID-19 than BC. Do you, there, you must, and I know you're behind the petition. So what would be a better solution? A better solution would be for uh, an enhancement to the list of essential reasons to cross the border for both Canadians and Americans. Uh, could be dealt with in a couple of sentences. Uh, would entail um, entering uh, the U.S., like in this case, Point Roberts, for care and maintenance functions or removal functions, like in, in the case of RVs or boats or horses or what have you. Uh, the folks that have cabins and cottages, they just want to go down there and make sure that there's not you know, mice, rats, raccoons, uh, whatever, bats uh, infesting their properties. And a lot of them, they left, you know, pilot lights running, water uh, connected and under pressure, uh, gas lines um, connected and under pressure, and all of their, all of their um, you know, hard, uh, hard efforts to maintain their properties in nice condition. All of that stuff is languishing. So it could be addressed so simply with, with just the hard and fast protocols. Hey, wear a mask. Don't come into contact with any of the local residents. Do what you got to do and get out. Uh, fairly simple in my mind. Fairly logical. Right. Even give people a time limit saying you have an hour to go and you need to be back here. And if you're not back here, you've broken the law. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, make some hard and fast rules. Uh, uh, it's a very simple protocol to follow. You don't need to uh, see anyone. And there's, like, in my petition, I've got 3,062 signatories to date, and some of them leave comments. And there's every once in a while you get someone who wants, they think they want to carry on as usual and go down there and spend time and recreate and carry on as usual. Eh? Or, or the folks, like you mentioned, that want to pick up mail and packages and whatnot. None of that is, is uh, uh, 
what I'm seeking. Um, I'm just seeking special dispensation to enter for care and removal processes. And that's it. I understand as well, though, and I'm sure others have gone to the Point Roberts Crossing and pleaded with the border guards there, just let me in, just let me do this, I'll be in and out, you know, nobody has to know. Did you try that? I did, I did. Um, On May the 13th, there was a power interruption here at my house at around 6 in the evening. And generally, whenever there's a power outage in uh, Swasson, it it follows that the marina will lose power. And uh, without getting into too many details, on, on a larger power boat, you've got four different battery bank systems. And there's a house system that runs the um, the bilge pumps. And uh, the, the whole thing is uh, charged by a combination inverter charger that maintains a float charge on those batteries. So as long as the boat is plugged into AC power and the AC power is not interrupted, it's pretty much fine. Eh? Like the, the batteries will stay charged. They can run the pumps continuously, endlessly, more or less. And uh, But as soon as you interrupt the AC power to the boat, uh, the charger inverter may not reset itself properly. Now you've got the, uh, the house battery system being drawn down by uh, bilge pumps in the engine room that are being run continuously. And eventually they'll they'll run the battery down to the point where it can't run the pumps and then the boat starts to fill up with water. And now you've got a boat full of 400 U.S. gallons of fuel, in my case, that's going to wind up on the bottom in the marina. And there would be hell to pay if that happened. Uh, so it's it's not a question of convenience or recreation for me it was it was it was an absolute must that i get that boat out of there and uh, get the servicing attended to eh? because when i got it out of the water i saw that all of the zinc anodes that protect the metal parts that are immersed in seawater all of the zincs were gone so i mean it was high time it came out of there eh? like at the last time it was serviced was april 26 of uh, the previous year so uh, I'm glad that I did what I did. I've, I've managed to salvage a, uh, a valuable asset. I mean, it's one of the few things I have, and um, I want to try and uh, enjoy the thing. It's an old boat that I purchased at the end of February of last year, and I brought it up from Seattle. been keeping it in Point Roberts up until just very recently, and uh, it's kind of like my bucket list thing. It's what I want to do, right? So. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. So you're in 14-day quarantine now since last Wednesday, so I should be uh, able to get out amongst everyone if I'm not dead uh, come the 22nd. All right. Well, fingers crossed, and I hope that you are okay. And uh, what a story about uh, the lengths you had to go to to do that. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it today. Thanks very much, Jill. And these folks can go to change.org and search Point Roberts. They'll find the petition, and I'm going to pull the trigger on it and uh, disseminate uh, the formal uh, presentation to all the polit- uh, politicians, and uh, I'll include media folks and any other, any other interested parties as well. All right. Sounds good. We'll be waiting for that. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, the Angus Reid Institute has done some polling, taking a look at the approval rating for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Angus Reid Institute Executive Director Shachi Curl. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Jill. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what did you ask people? Well, it's a standard question that we ask every every six weeks to, to three months on a regular basis, just asking, do you approve or disapprove of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? And before that, we used to ask about Prime Minister Harper, and before that, we used to ask about the guy before him. So it's an, it's an ongoing standard question. And we find that uh, since uh, the last time we asked it, his approval rating has dropped five points and is now starting to trend down for the first time really since the COVID-19 emergency began. 
Um, and those numbers certainly come days after we start to hear uh, about uh, the reporting and the alleged conflict of interest between Mr. Trudeau, his family, and the relationship with the WE charity and the WE organization. So um, the question is what happens next, but in the early days, it does look like he's taking some hit to his uh, approval rating. And when you ask people, do you ask specifically if this story or if, if the We Charity factors in, do you ask them if that's uh, how they uh, decide on their approval or disapproval of uh, Justin Trudeau? No. Uh, and what you don't want to do is really lead the witness. So you, you ask Canadians uh, of, of all walks of life, including those in British Columbia, um, what they think and, and, you know, do they approve, do they disapprove overall, you know, given everything that they've been absorbing uh, about about their their federal leader at the moment. And, for example, we saw his approval jump almost through the double digits uh, in, in the spring at a time when uh, he was seen to be doing a good job handling the COVID-19 crisis. He was seen to be responsive, taking it seriously. Um, doing what needed to be done uh, as a prime minister to to ensure that uh, both the public health side of things and the financial side of things for many Canadians who were suddenly thrown out of work was all, uh, you know, humming properly. And we saw, for example, people across the political spectrum, past NDP voters, past conservative voters, uh, give him some grudging approval on that front and say, yeah, I think he's done a pretty good job. At that time, we didn't say hey, what do you think? Is it because of COVID? We just said, what do you think? And we saw the reaction. In the same way, we know that this has been the only uh, story, the dominating story that's come out of the last week uh, in terms of uh, the the ties to we and the sole source contracts to that business uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, administering a $900 million fund. And, you know, Canadians, I think, in situations like that, uh, react in one of two ways. If they like the Prime Minister, and many of them do, uh, this is water off the duck's back. If you're someone who has been annoyed with him in the past, maybe because of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, or maybe because of vacationing on the Aga Khan's island, or other issues in between, uh, this type of scandal, this type of situation serves to remind Canadians why they were annoyed with him to begin with, even if they have been softening or warming to him a little bit in the past months because of COVID. Uh, interesting when you look at those numbers, too. Like you said, they, the approval rating, the, the increase in his response after he started responding to COVID-19. So still ahead, even with this drop of the approval rating now. I also find it interesting when you look at findings comparing women and men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge gender difference on this issue, and there always has been. Um, Women have been much more approving of Justin Trudeau over the years than men have been. They have been far warmer to him over the years, and that continues. So you still have a majority of women saying that they approve of Justin Trudeau uh, and a minority of men saying the same thing. And, in fact, the difference between that is an almost 20-point gap between men and women. Now, what's driving that or what correlates on that front? Well, the issues that women are much more likely to be focused on and concerned with, uh, health, uh, the economy, uh, household finances, 
Um, and all of those are issues that feed into or are related to the COVID-19 crisis. And if they, again, if they feel like, yeah, he's done a good job handling that part of it, they're, they're less likely to be unhappy. For men, and particularly for those who tend to vote and lean conservative, and more men do, particularly if you're older, then your talk issues are less about that and more about corruption and ethics and transparency and accountability. And if that's your number one issue, gosh, you're very, very upset with this prime minister.